Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast that relishes being out of date by the time I finish this sentence. I'm Alex Andreu. We hope you're enjoying the new twice-weekly podcast. Tuesday's edition was a smash hit and we don't think we're going to run out of material anytime soon, do you? So remember to check your app on Tuesdays as well as Fridays or do the decent thing and subscribe. Let's meet today's esteemed panel. After a short break, the CEO of Best for Britain, a tank that actually thinks, <laughs> Naomi Smith is bringing sexy back. She actually told me to say that. <laughs> Hi, Naomi. <laughs> you cheeky boy. Hello. <laughs> Hello, listeners. It's lovely to be back. Lovely to have you. Uh, Labour is experiencing enormous leads in the polls. Uh, when you look at the projected seat map, it's hard to see why they might still need to consider electoral pacts. Is tactical vo voting no longer necessary? Oh, very good question. Um, and let me unpack it slightly so as not to conflate electoral pacts, whatever you want to call them, and tactical voting. So, uh, yes, poll after poll after poll showing a very, very clear and uh, increasingly large lead for Labour over the Conservatives. However, and we'll probably talk a little bit more detail about this later, there are some significant numbers of don't knows in those polls, 20-30% in some of them. And the fear, of course, is that many of those are what pollsters might refer to as shy Conservatives, uh, that we know uh, when it is sort of less fashionable to admit that you are a conservative, such as now in the bonfire <laughs> that we are facing. Yes, all conservatives should be shy right. at the moment. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they say don't know. But when an election is called, we often see those don't knows reverting to type and rowing in back behind the conservatives. The other point to make is that Starmer's personal favourability while good, is nowhere near where Blair's was at the same time ahead of an election, sort of, you know, 18 months, two years out. Who knows? There may be an election much sooner. But overall, therefore, the, the picture is, of course, good for, for Labour. But I don't think we're in landslide territory when you factor in many of those things. Also, this is going to be a very different kind of election, potentially mm -hmm. under different boundaries and with requirements for people to have ID that they haven't had to have before. And we know that younger people, minority groups, the less well off, much less likely to have those forms of ID. So for a variety of reasons, no one should take anything for granted at this stage. And I do think it would still be sensible for the Liberal Democrats to focus on the LibCon marginals with Labour not spending much money there at all. And similarly backing off in the LabCon marginals to make sure 
that we do wrestle the keys to number 10 out of Conservative hands. Tactical voting will forever be necessary under a first-past-the-post system. So until we've got equal votes in PR, tactical voting will be needed. That is getting more difficult as the polls change because it's not necessarily obvious who is out of Labour and the Lib Dems in second place in some of those seats. Mm -hmm. So watch Best of Britain for, for details on how to vote when an election is called. Very good, we shall. Seth Tevoz is a political historian and author of Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. Hello, Seth. Hello, Alex. Boris Johnson is enjoying a long summer. He's picked up 135k for a speaking engagement in Colorado during a, a family break in the Dominican Republic, apparently. Is there any kind of minimum amount of time MPs have to spend in Parliament actually representing their constituents? No, not really. I mean, beyond a few basic things at the start of a Parliament to register, to be sworn in and so on, this all goes back to the 19th century patterns of Parliament and the idea that um, MPs were sort of independent gentlemen of leisure who did the parliamentary thing in their spare time. Um, Now, in the modern day and age, um, we have this whole sort of controversy over MPs spending time on second jobs and whether they should have second jobs. Um, Labour's come out very strongly in recent years against this idea at all. They've, they've proposed that apart from a few basic essential things like doctors and nurses and barristers, MPs shouldn't have second jobs at all. Um, interestingly enough, I, I mean, I, I hold a slightly more controversial view, actually, which is I'm rather <laughs> sympathetic to the idea that people uh, in Parliament can go off and do things on the side, because very often the ones who do that are, have something more interesting to say because of first-hand experience. I mean, doctors are, are usually held up as a sort of saintly example. Um, the more brutal example, actually, is that every single minister, every one of the 100 people who holds a government office actually has a second job because they're doing that on top of being an MP. Um, and they're balancing that somehow and neglecting their constituents to some extent. So we tolerate it for some things and we don't tolerate it for others. But the whole thing is a mess in terms of how we justify it. Mm. Our guest this week is a journalistic force of nature, the long-standing bureau chief in London for German broadcaster ARD and a columnist for the New Statesman, Annette Dittert. <laughs> Hi, Alex. Thank you for the lovely introduction. Nice to have you back. <laughs> Indeed. Back in May, which feels like several decades ago, um, you wrote for the New Statesman that the Johnson fangirling from the press was changing the definition of journalistic impartiality. Now, even the government's most loyal stenographers at the Telegraph and the Mail are declaring it is over for trust. Do you think our fourth estate will reflect on its influence after this series of bin fires they have created? I think that um, the media overall have sort of uh, yeah, sort of come back to their original British force, especially the BBC. I think they're much less frightened now to to really ask questions again. So I'm actually a bit more optimistic ever since Johnson has has left the scene. I can see that that even if I listen to the Today Show in the morning, that have been particularly um, anxious and cautious often during the Johnson time to talk uh, to ask the right questions and to really not let. Uh, those politicians get away with mm, with mm. the occasional nonsense that has changed a little bit i think and i'm quite hopeful that maybe in this total chaos where you can't really be a fanboy <laughs> anymore um the bbc and and also the rest of the media i mean even um the times and and um the telegraph has has recently said that 
uh, maybe Project Fear was right all along this column by yes, Jeremy Warner. Yes. I was pretty surprised to read that. So I think something is changing. We don't really know where that leads to, but it, it feels when it comes to the media and how I do observe the media landscape here, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic at the moment that they find back their old strength. Very good. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Today on the show, Liz is out on her last legs, safe for now. Delete as appropriate, depending on when you listen. We'll keep you up to date on the milfey of shite that is the Tories' most recent succession crisis. Plus, nearly three years since the general election to get Brexit done, the voices calling for a closer relationship with Europe are getting louder. The National Rejoin March is taking place this Saturday in London, with the Telegraph admitting Project Fear was right. Is rejoin no longer a dirty word? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, no soup for you. A team of teens, too young to get that reference, have chucked soup at Van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery. What does the panel make of Just Stop Oil's latest stunt? All this after a public information message from Naomi. Before we get started, a bit of news. Because, well, (laughs) there's not much of it these days. If you're a fan of Origin Story, our companion podcast with Ian and Dorian, they're doing their first ever live show in London on Wednesday, 2nd of November at 21 Soho near Tottenham Court Road Tube Station. It's a special season two launch event for the podcast that explains how political ideas are used and misused. Dorian and Ian will be workshopping a whole new edition of the show live on stage without a safety net. Tickets are out now at 21soho.com. That's 21-soho.com. And for some reason, they're under the comedy section. Or just follow the link in the show notes. First, what have you been watching lately? House of the Dragon? The new Adam Curtis documentary on Russia? How about the Daily Star's live stream of an iceberg lettuce with a wig on, competing to outlast Liz Truss's premiership? Some insiders report that Truss is a few 1922 committee appearances away from a P45. Others are sure she'll cling on for a while. Liz Truss is convinced she will lead the Conservatives into the next election. And who am I to doubt her political instincts? Let's see what the panel thinks. Um... Um, Naomi, (laughs) Defence Minister James Heapy had a gloriously shambolic media round on Tuesday (laughs) saying that no one in the cabinet realised the mini-budget was flawed. Is that just spin or does it accurately reflect the critical faculties of the current cabinet? The latter, the latter. Uh, (laughs) Trust appointed acolytes. She went out of her way not to give jobs to any of the serious front runners uh, and more competent members of the last government and and chose to to give them to those that had backed her um, in in the leadership race uh, or had eventually backed her in the leadership race. The paucity of talent in Parliament is palpable, but amongst the cabinet, it is off the charts. Uh, There is absolutely nobody worth their salt even people who have done 
101 economics, GCSE economics, could have seen how badly this was going to play out. And they did it anyway, which one can only conclude is because they are just too stupid to have got it. That's actually quite frightening. I I hoped you would go for spin. Um, There was huge pressure and trust to deliver, deliver, deliver in the first BMQs of the Truss Hunt era. I must be careful when I say that. But she seems to have already been bounced into a U-turn of the U-turn on pensions. (laughs) Hunt said he wouldn't commit to the pensions triple lock. She overruled him from the dispatch box on Wednesday. What's going on? She's just bouncing from crisis to crisis. That wasn't the only potential U-turn that happened at PMQs. All the reports from her meeting last night with the ERG, the European Research Group, the, the hardline Brexiter MPs of her flanks, made sure that you know they probed her on the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, on ECJ oversight of uh, matters in Northern Ireland, and we're told she committed in that meeting, I'm going to keep this bill on the table and we will not allow any ECJ oversight of Northern Ireland. An ERG MP then in PMQs asks the question, does the PM commit to this still? And she said warm words, but she did not restate that commitment. So depending on who her audience is at that time, she takes a calculated decision as to what's going to be the thing that gets her out of a sticky wicket. And she is just bouncing from crisis to crisis. She has not got a handle on any of it. She's in deep shit. And uh, and it looks as if it's getting worse for her as we are recording this podcast right now. Um, just as we started recording, reports broke that Braverman has left the post. Mm. Um, so the Home Secretary is no more, apparently not over a matter of policy, but over a genuine error. We don't know what uh, uh, more there is to that. Turns out the Guardian reading tofu-eating wokerati were stronger than she anticipated. Do we know anything more? Yes, a big win for big tofu. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they, they got their scouts. I'd vote for that. <laughs> um, some speculation that it's a security matter, uh, breaching breaching security on a personal phone. Um, we're uh, being led to understand that Grant Shapps, um, has been appointed now as Home Sec um, mm-hmm. and therefore departs as chair of the Ukraine APPG after his successful election just yesterday. Um, the the fraud uh. chess that is being played around the cabinet at the moment is nuts. Uh, I, I, when we think about how thick-skinned she is, how unlikely she is to resign as a consequence of her personality, most people are assuming that she wouldn't go um, unless... As Johnson did once, once the big resignations start coming in from cabinet, this this isn't one of those. It, it does look to be a straight up sacking. Right, Annette, mm-hmm. you you <laughs> implored the Tory party to set Liz Truss free. Oh yes, after she after she looked like a hostage in the House of Commons on Monday, blinking "Help me" in Morse code. Um, but at a meeting of MPs later that day, she told them there's no viable candidate to succeed her. Is she holding the party to ransom? 
or vice versa? <laughs> I think it's more that she's being held hostage. I mean, although she pretends not to, but that's maybe then the Stockholm syndrome. Um, I think it's it's awful to watch, to be honest, painful to watch. And I'm yeah. really um, struggling now to explain that to my German audience because they really don't understand it anymore. Uh, let alone now braver men on top of everything else, um, yeah, who just lost her battle to tofu, um, <laughs> is something um, that, that uh, yeah, that it's, just, it's just really astonishing. I mean, I've been here for almost 15 years now, and even in the, in the worst phase of Boris Johnson, it was never as mad as it is now. And it's really, it is really not easy to explain anymore to anybody in Europe. I think there is also a playing up of peril. Mm -hmm. Mordant insisted that the PM had some very serious reason for not being there on Monday, to the extent that embassies were reportedly calling mm. Whitehall to find out if the PM was okay. Then we saw several press proxies actively playing up the prospect of Russia using nuclear weapons. Are, are they trying to terrify the country into submission? I think their own panic and the madness within the party that is clearly, and you can just see it from the way they are acting, is has become, yeah, it's just spinning in circles so, so quickly now that they are reckless enough to even use some security, secu security issues as a pretext why trust couldn't appear. And then when she appeared in parliament in the end, she had no, uh, she, she couldn't explain what it was because it that clearly was a pretext, and uh, it's quite shocking in a way how how yeah, they, they I mean, turn. A, a prime minister should be doing the opposite. Absolutely, and it is dangerous. I mean, it's also dangerous when you think about uh, all the serious stuff going on in the world, and and we have a yeah, I have a total basket case in Downing Street. I mean, it's really, I find it really scary. I mean, yeah, apart from all all the fun that it is to see this this craziness, but it's really scary when you think in what a dangerous situation the world is at the moment and the country as well. Um, mm. and, and, and they just don't seem to realize that it's really time to, to get serious and they can't get serious as long as trust is, is in Downing Street. And, and again, it's party before country um, because again, it's about not being able to find a grown up in the background. And as long as they don't have that because we don't want a general election because we would lose it, uh, as long as the party doesn't find a way for, for themselves, they will just keep a hostage there uh, to the detriment of the country. And that's quite shocking and quite, um, yeah, mad in a way as well. And it's the opposite mm, of mm. what a governing party should do. But it's it's almost like it's the epitome of, of that party before country mantra they always yeah. had. Kwarteng was the shortest serving chancellor, mm -hmm. 52 years. Braverman, the shortest serving home secretary for 188 years. And Truss can beat that because if she's <laughs> gone before Christmas, she'll be the shortest serving UK prime minister ever. Yeah, mm. she, she definitely will be gone sooner or later. I mean, it's so clear that she cannot go on like that. So I, I don't see why they're dragging that on instead of saying, let's just do a caretaker or whoever. I mean, there's other solutions than dragging on like that and having her sit there like a like a dead puppet. It's just really, yeah, it's shocking. And you're right, it's dangerous, Alex. Seth, um, friends of the podcast, led by donkeys, pulled off, I think, a stunningly effective stunt, attaching mm. a blue plaque 
to 55 Tufton Street with Here is Where the Economy <laughs> Died um, and projecting a film sitting at the links of various hard-right think tanks to the government. Is their credibility shot, do you think? They hitched themselves so firmly to this particular star that are, are they done now or can they argue their plan was terrific and it's just Truss and Quateng that botched the execution? I think they're done with the general public for a while, but they're not done with the Conservative Party. Um, I mean, your, your uh, jibe at the start about a think tank that actually does some thinking is very much on the money here. Very few think tanks do thinking. They are primarily, in this day and age, influencing operations. They yeah, are mainly lobbyists, lobbyists absolutely. Um, and they, they many of them hire more press officers by quite a factor than they do researchers, for example. Um, and it's very noticeable that they're very obsessed with debate. They flood uh, material into schools to try and coax their thinking into a libertarian direction, into a climate change denial direction. You know, there's this whole Tufton Street bubble of, of like-minded think tanks that, that we all look at. Um, they've been very successful in capturing the Conservative Party's thinking over the last 40 plus years. And the real anger that you hear amongst many Conservatives on the inside isn't that Truss has blown it with the economy. It's that she's made the stuff that they believe in discreditable and much harder for them to sell to the general public. Um, and this really goes back to, I mean, what Naomi was saying earlier about uh, the, this sort of sub-GCSE economics. This is not serious economics. This is a fetish. The Conservative Party today has an ideology that is primarily built on Thatcher cosplay. And Truss has really gone into that. I mean, it's not just this amazing mimicking act with her wardrobe. This is something that got her exactly where she wanted to be. Mm. It was something where she doesn't have a mandate from the public, but she certainly has a mandate from the Conservative Party to deliver exactly the sort of policies that were put forward in the mini-budget. Yes, but, but as I said recently on this podcast, she made the mistake that many drag acts make, which is to choose to impersonate the object of their affection at their most exaggerated yep. rather than a, at their best. Yeah. Um, you never see a thin even, Elvis impersonator. No, exactly. <laughs> even the British Medical Journal seemed to be getting in on the action. They published an investigation into donations from IEA affiliates to various MPs. Is this a good time for a proper look into the influence of these organizations or are they so just deeply entangled with our politicians that nobody has clean enough hands to take this on? Oh, they're, they're long overdue for a look. I mean, um, while we can all think of some of the more egregious examples, um, the problem is that think tanks are fundamentally about the privatization of public policy. Think tanks are a way for politicians to get around the civil service and civil service advice. Think tanks are a way to get around the political party's own parties without having to persuade colleagues and voters and engage in all sorts of difficult, awkward mm -hmm. things like people who might disagree with you. Um, and traditionally, you know, 100 years ago, politicians would have been independently wealthy and they'd have funded this themselves. Now they go through wealthy donors. So the influence of a few wealthy donors can be staggering in the kinds of research that they can promote because it's the, the advice that a government receives. And when you find something like the trust government's turfed out 19 out of 20 policy advisors in Downing Street and replaces them with people who are primarily drawn from the IEA, Tufton Street and so forth. Um, you know, some of the people that they turfed out were actually former IEA themselves, but they'd done a stint in government. 
And if there's one thing you can say for the Conservatives is that they're not short on people who have experience of governing. But this government decided to go straight to the wax jobs and the loonies for their advice. Annette, um, Nadine Dorries is offering her own solution, return to the man that gave the Tories their 80-seat majority in the first place. But would Johnson want to clean up this mess? I mean, I think, A, he wouldn't really want to clean up this mess. A, B, he's just started to make a lot of money in the States, as I heard, although I still haven't really understood why anybody would pay him so much uh, for for what he has to say, which isn't much, I mean, from having listened to his previous speeches. Um, I think he's quite happy to make some money and wait till the worst has passed. I don't think he's ready or really uh, envisaging to, to return anytime soon, but rather... It's my my feeling is that rather next summer, next next autumn, he definitely would want to come back. I think, and he mm. definitely mm. seems to um, torpedo any attempt to get Rishi Sunak back in power because that would make his life more difficult if he comes back next year. But I don't think he's um, ready to come now, and I do also not really see the Tory Party being that crazy to bring him back exactly now while they have to sort out this mess. I mean, everybody has now understood as popular as he is to win an election, he's not very capable when it comes to governing and especially not in in difficult crisis times like now. So I don't see that in the in the short term, um, but I wouldn't exclude it for longer. Mm. I mean, I can't see how they can explain the last six months with oops. Exactly. You know, sorry for your higher mortgages. (laughs) We made a boo-boo. We're going back to what what it was in April. Yes. Naomi, Rishi Sunak is reported to be under pressure to rule himself out as a unity candidate because Johnson supporters just won't wear it in exchange for Johnson ruling out a comeback because Sunak supporters (laughs) feel similarly strongly. (laughs) Can you think of anyone genuinely that could unify the Tories right now? Well, I mean, they're, they're pretty unifying around Hunt at the moment. Um, it, it may well be that, that Braverman is out because Hunt, being de facto prime minister, wanted to bring his friend Shaps in and and clear out some of the uh, new guard, whatever they are, mm, because mm. obviously Shaps has done plenty of time in, in cabinet before. Um I think it's an issue rather than a person. Um, So I think Brexit still unifies part of the party and the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, um, which the Lords reads at committee stage on the 25th um, and will presumably seek to amend, if not delay somehow, if that goes back to the Commons. I think you could see them unifying around that and that could breathe some life back into uh, the parliamentary party, but uh, I mean, look, this is a party that is so divided on so many issues. It's very, very hard to see how one member of the parliamentary party could unite this incredibly divided party. And and suddenly we've got fracking as well now, rearing its head as an issue. There's a vote on it today. Uh, right, right now, as we're recording, um, yeah, yeah. And and apparently the the government has chosen to make it a three line whip and consider it a confidence. Um, vote. Um, so there's a lot of uh, Tory MPs that are seriously ticked off about that. And, and I would imagine, if anything, it will stimulate a new sort of avalanche of letters to the 1922 committee. And we've already heard there's over 100 already. Yeah. So, and there's one MP, William Ragg, that's saying 
he will vote with the government because he doesn't want to lose the whip because that means his letter wouldn't count. Uh, it, I mean, does, does it seem like just a, a strategic, horrible error to push them at this moment in time? Of course it is. Of course it is. And you've even got Andrew Lilico <laughs> tweeting trying <laughs> to give Labour a chance. He's literally tweeted. Oh, I mean, that is really a bad sign. <laughs> for yes, boys. isn't it? Uh, He's oh wrong on God. everything. Yeah. This really worries me. <laughs> I find that quite frightening. Seth, is Hunt now Prime Minister in all but name? How has the One Nation Caucus, which is the smallest grouping in the Conservative Party at the moment, effectively triumphed like this? I think we'll see how powerful Hunt is from whether Truss U-turns on her U-turn from the U-turn. Because <laughs> he contradicted <laughs> oh, what he was saying on Monday. Exactly. <laughs> surely, surely that's not possible, yeah. right? But I, I wouldn't um, exaggerate, actually, the triumph of the One Nation Conservatives. They're actually very much a, a rump group. I mean, the One Nation group is about 100 Tory MPs. That's um, less than one in three. Um, they are considered slightly embarrassing in Tory circles today, but um, they are usually of a certain age. Um, you know, they're chaired by Damien Green, who, behind the scenes operator though he is, has never quite lived down being dismissed as Theresa May's de facto deputy after the whole porn on his parliamentary mm. computer thing. Um, they are not seen as the future of the Conservative Party. The One Nation group is the thing that dare not mention its name, and they're not even particularly good at mobilising as a group around, say, one candidate. Penny Mordaunt was meant to be their candidate, but actually quite a few of them voted for Rishi Sunak in the recent leadership election. So um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's their triumph. I think it's more that the Tories are desperately scrabbling around now for anyone who, firstly, will last until next week, but secondly, looks vaguely credible. <laughs> So uh, yeah. while William Ragg has put his letter in and is is going to vote with the government tonight so that his letter stands, as we've been recording, Chris Skidmore, former energy minister uh, who signed net zero into law, uh, first Tory MP prepared to lose the whip tonight. And he's a co-author of Britannia Unchained, that oh, book that Truss and, and Quartem were associated with. And uh, following close on his heels, Tracy Crouch has said ditto. So they are all now yep. lining up. This is a house of cards that by the time we finished recording this podcast, could well they're, have completely they're... fallen. <laughs> They're sort of daring her. Will the last Tory MP to rebel against the whip please turn out the lights? It just really does feel like the party is, is imploding now, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, I don't want to anticipate anything, but I get nervous calls from my desk in Germany asking, will that party still or yeah. that government still be there tomorrow morning? I mean, it's really quite astonishing what's going on there while we're recording today. <laughs> Annette, not to bring the party mood down, but can uh-huh. I ask you a slightly more serious one again? The vibe from the government has been, we have protected people from the energy crisis. So people not paying very close attention will be quite shocked at their bills Mm -hmm. shooting up this month. News of inflation today back in double digits. Deep cuts are as good as baked in. With someone effectively squatting in number 10 with an approval rating of minus 70, (laughs) that's four points away from Vladimir Putin. Putin. How long can civil civil cohesion 
last? I mean, how long will it be before people are actually out in the streets? That's always the great, uh, the, the, one of the questions I get most when, when I'm uh, in live interviews with German television, because as the French, they don't understand why Brits are so sheepish almost. They are sometimes do ask me and do not really protest. And, and you can just uh, get away with so much being a British government here. And uh, that's something I've been asking myself a lot because I think there is a breaking point ahead where it won't work anymore. I mean, we've done interviews with Uh, with people, with elderly people, case study interviews, who really are scared how they will survive this winter. And I think this almost obscene power plays behind the scenes of a party that should govern and that should really take this crisis seriously, which they don't mm. really, is, um, I think is so extreme that it might even bring the British people to, to the streets at some point. I've, I've never seen people so angry in interviews as, as during the last two weeks. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm quite uh, curious. I mean, it might happen. It did happen with the poll tax. I yeah, mean, occasionally people do get really angry here. And when that point and if that point and when that point is, is sort of really there, then it, there's no way back either. That's also interesting. Other than in France or Spain, where you constantly have people on the streets and then nothing much changes. It, I think here mm. it will be mm. different. Once the patience is sort of up, then, uh, then uh, the Tory party won't recover from this. Mark mm. Menzies, Conservative MP for Fylde, also saying he's defying the whip tonight. I've quickly scanned Braverman's resignation mm -hmm. letter. She's basically saying, I made a mistake, therefore I'm resigning. Prime Minister, you should do the same. You have made yep. a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I have yeah, to give I a shout that. out on Twitter to Soph Louise Hall, who tweeted, hell hath no fury like a woman Warned. <laughs> Brilliant. <Wow>. Brilliant, <laughs> That is fantastic. Naomi, last question to you. No one on Tuesday's edition predicted an election anytime soon. Can we make this a, a, a Togwin versus Frogwin contest? <laughs> so can you see a path to a general election, however convoluted, earlier than 2024. Can the opposition do anything to force it? Not really, no. Uh, Johnson, oh, come on. Johnson passed uh, the Elections Act, a really egregious you know, bill, repealed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Um, it is in the gift of the Prime Minister alone. Uh, there are increasing numbers of Conservatives saying we, we would have to go back to the country if we change leader. Mm. Um, and if you had a, a, a mini bounce from a safer pair of hands like Hunt at the helm and you saw some of those don't knows slipping back into conservative uh, numbers, they may feel that it's, it, you know, it's stemming the tide and let's go now and, and accept yeah. that we'll lose, but with far more MPs than we would do if we cling on. So uh, it's possible. It's probably not that likely. Um, as things stand today. I, I wouldn't exclude it, though, either. I mean, the way things are going at the moment, it's so unpredictable. The, the real risk when you get to this stage of a, of a fourth-term government is that a sort of nihilism takes over, and they start to think, mm. well, we're going to lose the next election anyway. We're 30, 40 points behind in the polls. Nothing's going to shift that. So we may as well just dig in and not bother trying to do anything. I, I would point them to the example of PASOK in Greece, Um, who did that and ended up basically getting annihilated. Um, they were one of the two parties in a two-party country. Mm. And 10 years later, they're still on 13%. So um, it, it doesn't always work out all right.
Following a historic market crash brought on by the mini-budget, a Telegraph article announced that Project Fear was right all along. Now, while that was not an editorial line, there are signs that the taboo is lifting around saying Brexit was the worst idea since the Luftschiffbau (laughs) company decided to fill a Zeppelin with flammable gas. On Saturday, Remainers from across the country plan to indulge in our favourite pastime, marching in the pissing rain while holding up whimsical signs. Has the debate genuinely shifted, or is this just magical thinking? Seth, Matt Fry asked Tobias Elwood, Tory MP, this week whether we should rejoin the single market to help with the cost of living crisis, and Elwood said we should be considering it because the Brexit economic model hasn't worked. Those are his words. Do you think that if one nation Tories do manage to take the reins, it will eventually become easier for them to push on this issue than Labour? It's far from clear that one nation Toryism differs that much in this day and age in terms of governance. It does involve a lot of traditional conservative government whilst saying sorry a great deal. <laughs> I mean, is it, for example, something to do with the substantive size of the state? Well, by that marker, um, Boris Johnson's was the most one-nation Tory government ever. It was also one of the most right-wing governments ever. Um, so I don't think mm. it's it's as simple as that. If it means pro-Europeanism, well, Conservative parties are a long, long way from that, by all means. Um, so I'm, I'm rather sceptical as to whether we are going to see any sort of resurgence of one-nation Toryism. I think it's, um, it's a generational thing, which has more or less died. I just, have, I just have a feeling in my waters, Seth, that the, the necessary step they will need to take after this extraordinary mm. period is to recapture the sense that they're an economically competent, responsible yeah. party. And so... A way to do that, I'm not talking now, but I'm saying in five years or ten years, one way to do that will be to say we should be in the single market or the customs union. We should have a closer relationship. It was kind of their baby to start with. Oh, indeed. And they'd be well-placed to to make that argument. Um, But it's a difficult one to hold because it's the worst of all worlds. I mean, speaking as a Swiss citizen who knows only too well what it's like being on the sort of outermost fringes of Europe (laughs) where you are a rule follower, but you don't have any voice in setting any of these rules. Um, It is the worst place to be. We talked about inflation figures earlier. Looking under the bonnet of those, one of the primary drivers is food inflation. It's much higher than general Mm. inflation. And the main factor for that is import costs. And yet none of the analysis I've seen even mentions Brexit. Why is that, do you think? I mean, it, it is the word that dare not speak its name. You know, we, we keep getting these full-throated denials that Brexit has anything to do with the many economic challenges facing the UK, whereas it's not the one economic challenge facing the UK. It's just something that touches on absolutely everything else and complicates and magnifies it. And that involves such a volt fuss for this government that I don't think they're equipped for that. Now, the question for the next government, um, whether it's Labour or any combination of any alternatives, is are they able to bring this up in a, in a mature and nuanced way? Because at the moment, Keir Starmer is still very much backing himself into the corner of saying, um, well, we're not going to rejoin, we're not going to do anything irresponsible or reckless, and pushing away from just simply having an open mind and saying this is a major factor that's affecting everyone. Um, And I wonder what will be the point on that. I I suspect a large part of that will be 
the anniversary of uh, the Brexit vote in 2026, simply because mm. we've evolved this argument about it being a once-in-a-generation vote. But no one ever said it was once-in-a-generation, and indeed no one's ever even defined what once-in-a-generation is supposed to mean. Annette, this conversation seems to me to be repeating one of the basic Brexiter mistakes. It is entirely Anglo-centric. The assumption is that all the UK needs to do is indicate it would like to rejoin Mm -hmm. and the EU will welcome it with open arms. Is that expectation realistic? No, not at all. And that's something I I, I keep sort of trying to dampen down whenever it comes as as a hope from people and increasing numbers of people uh, here in Britain who would like that, especially younger friends I have. I think it's very unlikely that the EU would want uh, Britain back at this moment in time and even with a, with a Labour government as long as they wouldn't be totally sure that this whole mess doesn't start again. And even if the ERG and the um, yeah the IEA people and Dufton Street and all these pressure groups for, for Brexit don't really retire to a definite fringe where they're Mm. play no role anymore. I think as long as that is still a risk that this fight starts again, the EU won't want Britain back. I mean, Germany especially misses Britain uh, in the defense and security politics. I mean, there still is bilateral cooperation, much better than you would think. But overall, there's so many other problems in Europe and within the EU at the moment with Italy, with Poland, with um, Orban and Hungary, that I think the last thing uh, they need at the moment is is a still divided Britain over this. And I don't see Britain unifying, really unifying over this uh, anytime soon. Naomi, the pandemic and the cost of living crisis are sapping people's morale and, and Project Fear's predictions for the economy are bearing all kinds of rotten fruit. Isn't this a good time to press the economic case for a join? Oh, well, the economic case has always been there. And I would, you know, maybe argue it's more the emotional case that was never made and and, and should be. Um, I completely and wholeheartedly agree with the goal of everybody that wants to rejoin and people feel that the wind is in their sails and would like to demonstrate but we do need to acknowledge as Annette was saying that this is the work of years and years as much as we would all love to be able to rejoin tomorrow I think it is about baby steps not least because of the caution that the leader of the opposition Keir Starmer is is taking over anything to do with closer relations to Europe so I think we have to settle for regulatory alignment next year single market access within a couple of years and then as, as Seth was saying you know nobody wants to be a, a rule taker without being a rule maker and so that we can get back to rejoining you know a couple of years after that um but yeah i mean we should always be making the case for pro-europeanism for sure mm, you you are our polling queen queen of the data <laughs> so do we do we know if there are voter demographics for whom the eu remains a, a core issue or a top issue uh yes uh most of them will be listeners to this podcast i think they were a larger grouping before the cost of living crisis, which really has right. rapidly escalated as everybody's number one. Um, and, and obviously with all of the chaos caused uh, by the mini budget to mortgages and rising interest rates, uh, even those who could afford to pay their extortionate energy bills are now feeling the pinch with with mortgages. And so that 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 remain that core remain demographic of the urban 
highly educated um, individual tending to be younger, um, although education was was the key marker. Uh, even even for that group now, cost of living has become the most pertinent issue. I mean, I guess that's why I don't understand why there is such a reticence on on behalf of media to broach the issue because you know these people it's not like they've gone away they they're in the highest offices at the moment jacob rees-mogg was the main person who promised lower food prices and mm. he's now touring studios as a secretary of state uh, and and no one seems to ask him you know what what happened look at food inflation look at import prices did you get that wrong? It seems to me a fairly low-hanging fruit journalistically. You'd hope so, but then remember that much of our media is owned and controlled by the very people who'd pushed the Eurosceptic project for 40 years. Mm. Their paymasters don't like it up them. Naomi, is there room for rejoin, let's call it hard rejoin, rejoin right now, is there room for that to work in tandem with campaigns that push for a more gradual reintegration in terms of shifting the Overton window so that, for instance, alignment is seen as a very reasonable middle ground? Oh, so oh for can, sure. Can they yeah. act as our the equivalent of UKIP. early UKIP, if that Yeah, of course, sense. of course, of course, of course, of course. And I think that that's what the Lib Dems tried to be in 2019. Those groups do all work well together um, and and do, you know, make sure that they know which campaigns they're all running and who's going out hard on the rejoin, who's doing the softer uh, alignment regulatory framework kind of stuff. Um, but the depressing thing, of course, is that, frankly, the Lib Dems, as well as Labour, well, they either can't or won't. Yeah make pro-Europeanism and internationalism and the benefits and wonders of migration things that they want to talk about. Patrick Maguire in The Times has compared Starmer's make Brexit work messaging to Miliband being overly cautious in 2015. Is that is that a fair charge? Um, the Starmer five-point plan that was published... Uh, a couple of months ago is not wrong and not bad. It just doesn't have enough detail attached to it. And I don't think that you can make Brexit work. It's It's been proven to have been a complete disaster. So as their poll lead continues and, and hardens, they will have more bandwidth to start talking about that stuff without fear of losing all of those uh, former... Uh, Labour turned Tory in 2019 voters, you know, often referred to as, as being in the red wall. And I've long said on this podcast that Labour can't just throw crumbs at the Remain vote and, and the, and the pro-European yeah. uh, elements of the country. They, need, they do need a little bit more and you have got to build a coalition. Mm. Seth, Fintan O'Toole in the Irish Times pointed out that Truss and Quarting's Britannia Unchained manifesto did not identify EU membership as a particular problem. We are hearing generally more positive mood music around the Northern Ireland Protocol talks. And Truss attended the first meeting of the new European political community. I know it's difficult to cut through and see any kind of consistent message at the moment, but do you sense there is a genuine softening there? I'm not sure I would read too much into that. I, I think participation in something like this 
meeting is is really just trust has been forced to govern. So she can't go on saying things like cheap shots at Emmanuel Macron saying, you know, friend or foe, jury's still out, all these kinds of things. And since the purpose of that meeting was really anyone on the European continent who's not pro-Russian, there's no way that she could have stayed out of that. I don't think that's a a signal shift. Um, What's really marked a lot of the poverty of relations with Europe, particularly with this uh, government over the last 12 years, is that they're really staggeringly bad at negotiation. Um, Now, I don't think that this government here today, gone tomorrow, though it might be, is actually a particular problem on this. I think the the problem is actually with backbench MPs and the climate of opinions. I mean, I remember having a very boozy gathering with a rather well-known Tory MP who was telling me that they were firmly in favour of legislating to be able, in the UK, to be able to break international law on the Northern Ireland Protocol, because although they had no intention of ever doing that, they thought it was a useful threat to make to the EU, and the EU would back down and kowtow to us that way. And again, I just think it's a, a staggering understanding of how politics works and indeed how business works. Um, just to add to that, that um, the Daily Star's um, lettuce oh, can, yes. which I'm looking at right now, has just added a plate of tofu um, <laughs> to, to that image. And that also friend of the podcast, Nigella Lawson's recipe of the day has just been published and it's Agadashi Toffler. Next up, a question from our listeners in But Your Emails. This week, Paul Barnes says, There is every chance that Labour will win the next election, but in the run-up to polling day, the anti-Labour, anti-Starmer disinformation campaign from the Mail, Express, Telegraph, etc. will reach a deafening fever pitch. Is there anything that Labour could do once in office to combat a largely hostile media, short of draconian anti-press legislation? And can I add my own question? to that. Is there anything Labour can do to neutralise it before the next election? Who wants it? I mean, from my perspective, it's Leveson 2. So Leveson 2 was binned by uh, the, the previous government in 2018. What it was going to be doing was looking at the criminal aspects of phone hacking, the extent of corruption across press, politics and policing, that allowed the hacking to be covered up for so long and that uh, Leveson 2 inquiry was cancelled as I say in 2018 and that was a massive betrayal to all the victims of phone hacking Um, and uh, you know we're now having more allegations um, coming forward about hacking having happened made against the Daily Mail you've got claimants that include uh, Baroness Doreen Lawrence the mother of Stephen Lawrence yes there's another case going on isn't there exactly and but I think for for Labour's part that is exactly where they should be backing Mm. Leveson too bringing it back Seth, do you have anything to offer on the before the election question? What can Labour do to neutralise the attacks before that? I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a cynic on some of this. Every government tends to believe that the press is out to get them. But lest we forget, all throughout the new Labour years, um, most of the press, including a lot of right-leaning press and papers like the, the Times and the Sunday Times, actually moved heavily behind the Labour Party because they sensed that's where powers and the centre of gravity have moved. Um, mm. And I'm not quite as much of a believer that the Labour Party is going to find in their initial years in office, for instance, 
the press to be a problem. I mean, I would more see it as a question of stop seeing the press as the enemy and absolutely support what Naomi's saying in terms of um, Leveson 2 and having a, a, you know, a protection of the free press, um, which is actually a healthy thing. Um, the, the highly concentrated mode of press ownership in this country is the reason yeah. why we have a heavily skewed right-leaning press. Um, it's not that journalists themselves are not quite diverse. You'll find not only a number of left-wing journalists working at The Telegraph because it's a job, you'll find a number of right-wing journalists working at The Guardian because it's a job. But it's who they're working for that's the issue. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Naomi, what's yours? Well, uh, I'll probably be cheeky and have two, if that's okay. Um, First one, hilariously, the only crap economic policy visible from space is Britain lagging behind Italy as a third-ranked space power MPs warn. It was the Defence Select Committee that said it was unacceptable lack of progress in developing a 21st century satellite navigation system after we left the EU's Galileo project. But then um, there was an ESRI study that was showing that UK-EU trade has declined very significantly since Brexit. So this is the Economic and Social Research Institute. um, And they've got data from both UK and EU sources um, and estimates that trade from the UK to the EU declined 16% and trade from the EU to the UK has declined 20%. Um, This is extraordinary. This is, you know, bigger than previous numbers um, that we've seen uh, reported on bigger than project said, fear absolutely <laughs> indeed indeed and 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 this has gone woefully underreported across the business press and it's actually only really the irish press that i've seen make any hay out of it how about you seth oh the uh, story that drew my attention of course is the peerages list from boris johnson now there are actually two peerages lists he's put out mm. the the big one full of lots of scandal from his uh, resignation honors that's still being held up in vetting right now and this could go on and on forever but um the thing yeah. that quietly slipped out on friday evening while we were all worrying about the economy in freefall um paul dacre appears to have been blocked or at least delayed. Uh, He may pop up again in Johnson's second list. We'll find out. But he was supposed to be a Conservative peer named in this. Remember that there was a leaked memo from Crosby Texter, the the firm that employs Mark Fulbrook, the chief of staff to this trust. Um, And the memo talks about how there was an agenda to try and pack the chamber with 40 new Conservative peers to give the Tories a majority in the Lords again. Um, And Appointing Paul Dacre was a key part of that because they wanted controversial, eye-catching people there so that there'd be so much fuming and ranting and raving mm. over Paul Dacre being nominated. We'd sort of miss the point in our reporting that they're packing the chamber and getting the majority again. Um, there was a second name believed to have been vetoed. Now, this is a rather interesting thing. The, um, the Telegraph, a couple of weeks ago, had actually leaked a version of the list. And one name, who's a DUP nominee, a wealthy person who's never given money to the DUP, but has given money to the Conservatives, is meant to have been blocked. Um, He's a deeply litigious individual, so I'm not going to name him here lest I get this show into trouble. But um, that is a very interesting development. Um, Meanwhile, we're waiting with bated breath for Mm. Boris Johnson's list, which is meant to be a corker. 
Um, there's a story last week, which I broke, um, about Pretty Patel being nominated on that list for a peerage. Uh, it's also reported yeah. elsewhere that it's believed eight current MPs are believed to be on that list. Now, that's potentially eight by-elections for the government. A, a farewell gift from Boris Johnson to this trust. <laughs> My story is about Jason Stein and Sajid Javid, and the two are connected. Sajid Javid was down to be the first question in Wednesday's PMQs, that very critical PMQs for trusts. And a lot of journalists were speculating that this was not going to be an easy question to start with. Um, Jason Stein was apparently the number 10 advisor who briefed that Javid was shit. And what happened just before PMQs is that uh, the story broke that Jason Stein had been suspended as Liz Truss's advisor pending an investigation. And Javid, who was down to ask the first question in today's PMQs, didn't. So that seems like a really neat tit for tat to me. But that might just be my cynical, suspicious mind. And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thank you very much for having me back. To Seth. Bye bye bye. And to our guest, Annette Ditter. Thank you very much, Alex. It was fun as always. <laughs> Stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of the enormous backlog of loyal and brilliant supporters. This is my debut set of shouts. So thanks from me to Michael Rabjohns, Sean, Clive Hewitt, Rachel, Kevin Brennan, Saphorism, Daniel Northover, Helen, Sam Harris and Paperback. Glad to be back, back, back to give a big thank you to Jonathan Brooks, James Jackson, Stephen Gow, Caitlin Coxon, Richard Adams, Rachel Parks, Aoife Brannock, Klocher, Arna Muller and Catherine Jenkins. And a massive thanks from me to Cathy Knipe, Janet Wallace, Ross Drayton, Rick Bean, Tom Emery, David Mitchell, Deborah A. Peller, Jill Westwood, Jonathan Crossley, and Kira Murphy. See you back on Tuesday. Only three chancellors till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what now? It was presented by Alex Andreu with Naomi Smith and Seth Tebbles. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers were Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold, and Jelena Sofronevich. Assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, two Just Stop Oil protesters chucked a can of soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery and glued themselves to the wall. The Museum of Modern Art in New York would be well advised to increase security in case someone decides to chuck sunflower oil on Andy Warhol's soup cans for meta-symmetry. Producer Andrew Harrison has threatened to tidy up Tracy Emin's bedroom in solidarity. <laughs> a lot of people seem outraged, and yet we are talking about it. So are protests like these actually very effective? Naomi, some thought this action was so ill-judged 
that conspiracies began to circulate, that, that it was an open design to discredit environmental groups. Can this really be a game of 4D chess by petroleum giants? Uh, yeah, no on the tinfoil hat stuff. Um, <laughs> but I think an acknowledgement that these are the actions of people who have probably tried being nice for years and who feel that they are left with no choice in the face of an existential emergency. Um, and I do completely and wholeheartedly agree with their goal. But meaningful political change requires you winning hearts and minds. And I think that... That was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now, every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to backers on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, what else? Every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.